Welcome to another edition of the Law of Code podcast. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. My guest today is Evan Zinneman. Evan is the founder and principal at Trailbreak, a boutique transactional firm providing tech-fluent corporate, regulatory, product, and IP counsel, and strategic advice to startups, builders, and investors throughout the crypto space. Evan also serves as special crypto counsel to clients of Reed Smith. What I'm really excited to talk to Evan about is his paper, Where Rubber Meets the Road, where he talks about the impact of MEV on OFAC risks and base layer infrastructure providers, base layer neutrality, and many other important aspects. He'll give us definitions on what we mean by all those particular phrases. So the goal of this podcast being you walk away with a really good understanding of what base layer neutrality is, why it's important, as well as the regulation we're seeing around this and how it could impact the future to, of this nascent industry. So Evan, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jacob. I thought we could start where I typically do, which is the Genesis block. I'd love to hear what your introduction to Bitcoin, to the cryptocurrency industry look like. I have a pretty weird and winding relationship with crypto and same can be said about my legal career, really. I was first shilled Bitcoin in 2012 from a friend who was always on the cutting edge of technology. And we really connected on it because you know, I've been a techie nerd since I was a young kid. And my friends and I, we were even bandying about spinning up some miners in northern New York because it had such cheap energy prices at the time. But, you know, Bitcoin was only being used for one or two things back then, and I just didn't take it very seriously. And I also didn't listen to him when he showed me the Ethereum ICO in 2015. I thought, oh, an escrow agent on chain, that's neat. And then I went back to what I was really focused on, which was my legal career. And crypto didn't really click for me until COVID hit. During 2020, I was working in the television industry, and that didn't really exist during the, the lockdown. So I had a, a lot of this new free time and... The Federal Reserve had also just printed 40% of all the dollars that had ever existed to fight the disease. And I had this lull in my focus to ask, like, what is going on here? And that's really when crypto took over my life. I, I went to my brother and he's been talking about and working at Bitcoin since 2015 himself. And another smart guy I was ignoring in pursuit of these dreams of mine. And he sent me a few videos and a few links and he said, come back with questions. And the next thing I know, I'm up until two or four o'clock in the morning every night of 2020 reading about Bitcoin, Ethereum, the Oracle problem, decentralized storage, like all these amazing things that have been developed since I stopped paying attention. And I still didn't have ambitions of making crypto into my career. I was still trying to help musicians make art. But then I was hired into the really great music group. Uh, at an international law firm. And this was right after the artists Grimes and Blau had each made millions of dollars selling early NFTs kind of over a weekend. And that next Monday, we have a call with one of our big music clients. This is like my third day on the job. And the, the client's asking, well, how do I make a million dollars over a weekend? And, you know, obviously we don't have real answers for them, but the partners are 
holding his hands and making him feel heard. And at the end of the call, one of them kind of just perfunctorily asks me, Evan, do you have any thoughts on this? And I said, actually, I do. And I went on for maybe 15 minutes about crypto and crypto law. And I don't remember what I said, but I just remember seeing these guys stare at me through the Zoom. And they must have been thinking, like, how does this kid know all of this? And the next day, one of them called me and said, do you want to do this a lot more? And I said, well, it's kind of all I want to do. And that started about a two-year span of me being the senior crypto guy for Reed Smith. And since then, it's been about half a year of me running my own crypto shop, which has really been awesome to be able to dedicate my career to these deep interests that I've had really since the first time I hopped on a computer. It's, yeah, it's so interesting to hear how people come at it in different situations. And I can imagine your brain lighting up when you heard that the partner say, hey, Evan, do you have any thoughts? And so since that time, you've gone out and, and you founded your own firm and, and you're building that out. Why did you decide that it was the right time to start Trailbreak? And, and what is it that you do and, and you build? Well, yeah, it's a solo shop and just having the great privilege of being in this crypto lawyer community that you, know, you and I are a part of and getting to meet these brilliant people that are all kind of working for the same goal, which is to help crypto be successful. And it's something that I haven't seen. I didn't see it on Wall Street. I certainly didn't see it in the entertainment industry. This collegiality and collaborativeness right. among ostensibly competitors, you know, people that sh should economically just be looking out for themselves, but we kind of believe in a bigger thing together and there aren't a lot of us. And so we all work on it together. And I've made great friends in our little lawyer groups. And I had a couple opportunities during the bull run, you know, a lot of silly opportunities approached me and I, but a couple that I was really excited about. One of them actually helped me get to the place, not only of being confident in who I was as a lawyer enough to spin up a practice, but also to put a lot of these thoughts that I was thinking down on paper. And that really ended up being the culmination of a lot of work that I had done in that interview process. Well, let's talk about that paper because I, you know, when I had, it had came on my radar, I thought it was a really interesting one. And even before we hit record, you had mentioned how you wrote this paper back in the summer, and now we're starting to see the things that you highlighted come to light. So Evan, I'd love to hear why you wrote where the rubber meets the road. And after you answer that, we'll get into what the paper talks about and some of the definitions, but I'd love to hear the reasoning behind this paper. Yeah, sure. So that latter interview that I was mentioning, it was with a really top tier infrastructure provider in this MEV block building space. And as I said, I'd seen a lot of silly opportunities presented to me come and go. And when I saw this one, I said, wow, this is something I would quit my job for. And so I, I really wanted it. So I was working really hard to impress these guys, to make them understand that I knew their technology as good as they did. So I, I could be a, a fluent member of the team. And so they dragged me through the ringer. I think it was 11 interviews over five months. And at the end of the process, we couldn't come to, to terms and we're still in touch. And at the end, I was just looking at the body of work that I had produced for these interviews. And I thought, I think I'm the only guy thinking about this like this, particularly in the context 
of MEV. And that's just combining my new technical understandings of the technology along with kind of my unique combination of legal and political perspectives. And you kind of put those things all together and these very compelling deductions started to arise. And it was a, a shift from what I call a formalist mindset to a functionalist mindset in how I think regulators ultimately will view crypto operators. It's people are performing distinct functions and what they do, you know, functionally, what actions they take dictate whether or not they're regulatable, whether or not they are falling under certain regimes. I just felt that I had something to say. I thought it wasn't being talked about and it deserved to be in the public discourse. The paper touches on many aspects of MEV and of base layer neutrality. I'd love to hear you explain what base layer neutrality is for those who might not be familiar or just what your definition of base layer neutrality is and why it's important. And then after that, we can talk about how, why, and, and what this OFAC risk looks like. So the actual term base layer neutrality, I think, was coined by friends of ours who were writing policy papers in response to the tornado cash sanctions in which they were arguing that people that are on the, the base layer, the layer of the technology stack of blockchain that is responsible for putting transactions into blocks and then putting those blocks onto a blockchain, those actors were as neutral as the operators that facilitate communications over the telecom networks or the internet networks, the ISPs, and those actors aren't uh, responsible for filtering or mo otherwise monitoring the traffic that goes across their rail. So likewise, these pure rail operators in blockchain also shouldn't have filtering and monitoring obligations. And I agree that if neutral, then no filtering. You know, I, I agree with that. I forcefully agree with that. The one thing that I was, I just couldn't get away from, I couldn't get the questions out of my mind was whether Ethereum was ready to defend the position that it had achieved that neutrality. And that lingering doubt was because of all of this research I had done into MEV and how block building today on Ethereum really works. That's why I'm looking forward to unpacking this, because if you think about a provider, let's just say AT&T or any cell phone provider, right, they're building, they've built these rails, which we use to communicate, and they should not have, and they don't have a responsibility to filter all of our communication and then say, if our communication relates to stock transactions, now they don't have, to, they shouldn't have to register as a broker dealer or some other sort of. In yeah, or, body, or terrorism. Right? Exactly. Like if, if people use the internet for a certain way, the internet itself isn't the problem. It's the tools that they're using. And it's the people themselves, frankly, just because it's right. hard to go after them doesn't mean that you shouldn't take that approach rather than make everything more difficult for everybody else. So you mentioned, you know, MEV kept coming up. When you speak on MEV, in what way was MEV coming up? And can you give a refresher on what MEV is and why it's particularly important with blockchains like Ethereum? Sure. So I think it might be important to just define a couple things at the same time here. So we have what I've been calling block building participants, which is kind of my reframing of what 
many in the industry call, quote unquote, the base layer of Ethereum. That's kind of a broad categorization of what really is multiple different people, which I call block building participants or BBPs for short. And apologies to the audience if this gets a little technical, but really the, the deductions that arise really depend on a understanding of the technology on a certain level because there, there's distinctions at the technological level. So I'll try to keep this as high level as possible. But in modern Ethereum, there is a design concept called proposer-builder separation or PBS that the developers of Ethereum are seeking to implement. That is in response to a historical issue that previously miners and early validators post-merge had with respect to their privileged position in you know, the blockchain ecosystem. Because if you have one actor that's putting the blocks together, that's responsible for putting the blocks on chain, for testing if the blocks are valid, that's all the same person, you can see that there's kind of these centralizing and collusive forces that come into play that creates uneconomical abuses, which were occurring. And there's tons of research that goes into the spam and abuses and theft that was going on because of these centralized actors, these miners that were extracting value. MEV used to stand for minor extractable value. So to BBPs, just to finish on BBPs, in order to implement proposer-builder separation, what we are doing is segmenting that one role into several different roles where the abuses can be eliminated with technology to neutralize the risks. So in modern Ethereum, the kind of leading implementation out there of PBS is called the Flashbots Marketplace, developed by a group of developers called Flashbots. And in that ecosystem, and it, it keeps evolving, they keep you know, creating new roles uh, every day. But broadly, there's about four buckets of different actors in that space. You have what's called searchers, builders, relays, and proposers or validators. And I just like to distinguish those people as different actors that perform different functions and have different risk profiles, but they're all under the same umbrella of block building participants because they all focus on one role in this block building assembly line. So my understanding of the block building participants is that you have a group of actors that are all required to put together these blocks, right? There's not one that you can take away and now continue to operate. But so it's difficult to say which is more crucial than the other. They all play a certain role in the blockchain. Now we have MEV and MEV, the definition, as you mentioned, has changed over time, particularly when it comes to Ethereum. Could you explain what MEV is? Sure. Yeah. So as I mentioned, MEV, when it was first conceptualized a few years ago, stood for minor extractable value because we had, it was on proof of work Ethereum. We were dealing with the centralized miners and they were uh, reordering transactions, inserting their own in front of public user transactions in order to redirect value to themselves. And over time, post-merge, the miners disappeared. Now we call MEV maximal extractable value, but it really deals with the same concepts. And there's been a lot of writing on trying to figure out a concise definition for MEV. There's a lot of different schools of thought. There's a lot of PhD level 
mathematics papers written about what MEV is. And some of the big brains out there start to lose me uh, about the way that they talk about it. But I, I gave it a shot when I was writing all this up and I called it one, the there's the total economic value that could be captured by parties that perform a blockchain's block building function. So here, BBPs, so could be captured by BBPs. And that capture is enabled by the BBP's privileged access to and control over transaction flow and transaction ordering prior to the transaction's actual inclusion on the blockchain. And then people also use the term MEV to refer to kind of the strategic means and methods by which they actually extract the value. So you have MEV referring to the value itself, and you also have it referring to the kind of mechanisms for extracting it. We have MEV, we have the BBPs. The way you approach it is looking at, okay, what are the rules that are governing the blockchain industry, particularly blockchains themselves, when it comes to sanctions and, and the work OFAC does and how that can influence MEV, how that can influence block building participants. And so one thing that you mentioned early on in the paper that I think is important to set the tone is Executive Order 13694. Could you explain what this is and what the circumstances were behind Obama signing this executive order into law? Yeah. So it's important to note that this order came into effect even before Ethereum mainnet was live. It was April of 2015, and it had nothing to do with crypto. It was really an expansion of OFAC's sanctions authority to target foreign hackers and other cyber criminals, which Obama in the order declared a national emergency. This was, I think, just reflecting a broad increase in that kind of call it soft warfare across the world, whether out of Russia or other sorts of adversaries of the United States abroad. And so I think for our discussion, it's important just because it lays the foundations of how did, how did Tornado Cash get wrapped up in this? It's through this order, but also for the lawyers out there, it lays out the elements that need to be satisfied for someone under these sanctions to be found in violation thereof. And there's four or five elements They can be summarized as facilitating, dealings in, controlled, interests in property of a sanctioned person. And if all four or five of those are satisfied, then you know you might be getting a letter from OFAC. I'd love to hear the story behind Tornado Cash getting roped into this and looking back now at the order, would it have been obvious that someone, something like Tornado Cash would have been captured? Obviously, knowing that they wouldn't have thought about that at the time. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think it was obvious just because it took a lot of people by surprise and it led to some ongoing lawsuits over the kind of legal questions about whether it's even constitutional to do, right? But just to give a bit of the history, you know, under the order, there were some Ethereum addresses listed on what's called the SDN list or the specially designated nationals list, which is the list that OFAC puts persons and countries on when they've been designated for sanctions. And there were some EOA wallets designated from Russian nationals, the Lazarus group, which is the North Korean hacking group we'll talk about in a second. These individually owned wallets 
but there's never the addition on the SDN list of a smart contract address, a address that wasn't directly owned by an individual. And so the really big novel question here was, what does that mean, first and foremost, to put a smart contract on a list that's really supposed to be used for people and countries? What does that mean? And more practically, does that mean that BBPs in the US, so people that are conducting the block building functions of a certain blockchain that are based in the US, could those people held to be facilitating the dealings in control of interests and property of sanctioned people by building or proposing blocks onto a chain that contain transactions that are straight out of Tornado Cash or somehow linked to them. So that that was the big question there. And I, th I think it's important to note that the risk here we're talking about is different than a lot of the risk that we talk about in crypto more broadly, this securities, commodities, financial regulatory risk, right? Because in that latter bucket, unless you're committing massive fraud, you're probably not at risk of seeing the inside of a prison cell for launching your ICO. And that stands in stark contrast to a sanctions regime where you're talking about potential loss of liberty over offenses that by the letter of the law are strict liability. There is no mental prerequisites approved by the government. If you did it, then you're in violation. And it's really up to them to decide whether or not they enforce against you and whether they enforce against you civilly or criminally. And it's particularly in this national security context, they have a lot of flexibility in deciding who they're enforcing against and what arguments they're making. Right, right. And yeah, even I, I think that's such an important note to underscore, right? The What the consequences are of violations of certain rules plays a big factor. And many outside the legal community aren't quick to grasp that there's a difference between violating a rule under the SEC or under the uh, Securities Exchange Act or Securities Acts compared to violating sanctions. Uh, especially in the U.S., I know that's very, very big difference. And so in your paper, you mentioned the relevant legal language that may create enough of a loophole for courts in the service of the commander in chief to find or expand and or expand cover for an offensive on Ethereum's critical infrastructure beyond what many might anticipate. I'd love if you could expand on that relevant legal language and what an offensive on Ethereum's critical infrastructure could look like. Yeah, so the legal language is those five elements, again, that facilitating dealings in controlled interests and property of a sanctioned person. But the question is whether in the context of the national security states that these laws kind of serve and the politics around that, whether those words could be argued to be satisfied by the U.S. governments in this context. And I think that that's a really important thing to pay attention to in this matter, because this is where the political perspectives come into play that people may not be thinking about when they're thinking about the development of Ethereum, because it's really important to remember that you know, we're talking about North Korea here. You know, the, the reason that Tornado 
was sanctioned is because the Lazarus Group, a hacking organization funded or operated by North Korea, was stealing hundreds of millions of dollars, both in crypto and for years and years before they were responsible for hacking Sony Pictures, which people may remember, and several other high profile hackings. And they were just getting away with it, particularly when they had access to the liquidity of Tornado Cash to kind of hide some of that funds, which ostensibly, you know, to the United States was going towards the funding of nuclear weapons that are pointed towards us, right? That's the argument. And so that's the context that we're, we're talking about with how these sanctions came into play. And we're also talking about North Korea, a country that the U.S. is technically still at war with. The Korean War ended in an armistice agreement. It didn't end in a peace treaty. There, there is no state of peace between North Korea and the United States. And so we're in a wartime regime, and we're talking about the national security apparatus of the United States. And this is the same national security apparatus that brought about the internments of Japanese Americans during World War II and had the judicial branch ratify that action in a now infamous Supreme Court action called Korematsu. And it's the same national security apparatus that conducted warrantless spying on every American in the aftermath of 9-11 and likewise had the judicial branch uphold those actions through the FISA courts, which are instituted under the Patriot Act. And this is the same national security apparatus that in the aftermath of 9-11 operated black site torture facilities, disappeared people, detained people without habeas corpus indefinitely, killed two U.S. citizens with drone strikes. You know, this is very serious business that we're talking about. So I won't bog everyone down with hemming and hawing over the legalese of the elements of the paper and whether they arguably could be satisfied or not. And you can take a look at in the paper to see how I kind of land on those things. But it really boils down to me as to whether the U.S. government faced with continuing North Korean money laundering, even in spite of sanctioning the tornado cash smart contracts, jailing the developers, would they say, okay, so who are still performing the functions to make this happen? And how do we reach them? And you know, my concern was those questions may lead them to BBPs. Then the question becomes, right, if they do land on BVPs or they do come towards BVPs, what do people in the industry do? And how do industry best practices evolve in a way that allows this technology to thrive without crossing the entity that is the U.S. government? Right. And as we were talking about in, in the aftermath of Tornado, a lot of the industry was focused on this policy position that you know, validators and their compatriots were neutral. So no one need to look further. And we have decades of tech and legal history to rely upon in our favor here. But you know, that doesn't, unfortunately, include any consideration of the realities of MEV, which I really consider kind of a hidden hook here for arguments by the government and the national security apparatus. Because once you're looking into how the blocks are really built and put on chains, this process of MEV, where you have anonymous, self-interested robots 
arguably stealing assets and potentially engaging in other unfair manipulative trade practices, analogs of which are illegal in TradFi, things start to feel less like neutral networking rails and more like a dark forest full of monsters. Talk about best practices. I don't think being an ostrich here is a strategy, you know, sticking your head in the sand and hoping everything goes away. So a lot of what I spent the paper talking about is what I call a dual pronged approach, where the principal prong of that is continued technical developments of Ethereum along its roadmap, where you're addressing the policy and, and technical failures that result in MEV through technological advancement, but at the same time, not ignoring that compliance is a presence necessity and we need to take strategic compliance measures in the meantime to try to keep folks out of prison while this network that we really want to defend matures and grows to be able to withstand the regulatory heat that comes along with being such a popular, desirable product. And one thing I've noticed in the crypto space is there's often a big disconnect between what the lawyers know and what the clients know, and particularly what people who are building in the space but haven't spoken to a lawyer know and believe to be true. And through this conversation, one thing that I've been curious about, and I'd love just to hear your opinion on this, is what actors are most likely to ignore or not be aware of these potential issues and risks that they're taking on. Like when you were writing your paper, I'm sure some came to mind to you as, hey, these people should probably know how big of a risk they're taking on. But heck, I'm not sure that they have any idea they do. Yeah, it's, you know, some of my dearest friends are developers and I value their opinions and their perspectives because as a guy who's spent a third of my life, at least in the law, my way of thinking is indelibly kind of marked by this influence of the law and politics and policy. But you have people that's just not a everyday part of their life. And what they're focused on are writing innovative and important software that they think solves a you know, critical societal problem, which I'm sympathetic to that because I think that's why a lot of people, whether lawyers or developers got into the space, because we believe a lot of those same ideals. And so whether it's just simply the fact that they're focused on their job and unless they're told, hey, you know, you're going to go to prison if you don't listen to me and otherwise it's not a priority for them or they have a view that, well, the law is wrong, and I believe that the law should be different, and this is a way of me acting out against things that I believe should change in a democratic society, or people in the United States who take a position that what they're doing is First Amendment speech. They're just writing code. They're not operating it. They're just putting things out there that is sacrosanct under under the American constitution. So you see the broad range of kind of perspectives and views from developers. I certainly wouldn't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I, I don't think that anyone's out here with malicious intents or mm. nefariously trying to duck and dodge. I just think that not everyone's thinking about all these things at the same time. And it, it's a lot of work to think about one of these things 24 seven, <laughs> to think about like two or three of them at the same time. And just a lot of people don't have the time for it. 
And unfortunately, a lot of people also won't have the ability to plead ignorance where there are certain things that there's a strict liability offense at play and, and you're guilty of it, whether you knew about this rule or not. And that can be quite dangerous, particularly in an industry like this, where it takes much from the startup culture of build things, break things, and then iterate. And when you're dealing with national security concerns, OFAC's probably less likely to be very understanding of you wanting to build a crypto startup. Yeah, it's just the risks are just more severe. So like, as I said, in the paper, I, I think it's just prudence to take a look at these things. I was writing this whole thing and I almost stopped writing it several times because I was like, do I even believe what I'm saying? Like, do I even believe the legal arguments that I'm making? I could poke holes six ways from yeah. Sunday in what I'm saying, but I just couldn't get past the fact that it needed to be talked about because it wasn't being talked about. And I'm happy to be proven wrong. <laughs> I'm happy to have all of this be rendered moot by some technological developments that just totally does away with everything I've been screaming about. But in the meantime, I think that it's just, I just don't want the devs to go to prison. And so it's important to know the game you're playing because the government knows the game we're playing. And if they don't, they're certainly learning. I'd love if you could expand on Jin Young's son's proposal, parsing MEV into three subcategories. Could you explain what those categories are and why this is important and why you particularly wanted to include that in your paper? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a pretty obscure thing that I found. It's a guy from Flashbots named Jin Wan Sun. I just saw a video of him presenting at a conference where he's talking about one the fact that really MEV today is kind of a hollow and meaningless term because it used to stand for minor extractable value and there's no more miners, but we really liked the meme MEV. So we wanted to keep the acronym. So let's just call it maximal extractable value. And it, it doesn't have the same punch. And so he was saying, okay, let's change the acronym a little bit in the furtherance of having something that's practical and useful. So this, it gets a little heady and I'll, I'll spare you guys the details. You can read a lot more about it in the paper, but he breaks down the broader category of MEV, which I was saying is kind of nebulous, is kind of hard to define. And he says, okay, well, I see it as there being three different buckets or what he calls three EV. The three buckets are mafia, EV, Moloch EV, and Monarch EV. I won't go into what they all mean, but the distinguishing factors here are kind of how these policy failures or market abuses come about, the source of the MEV. And what I really liked about his presentation is that he was talking not only about a taxonomy of MEV that had a little bone meat on the bones than we were used to, but also he set forth this roadmap of getting to an ideal state, which he called a 00100 state, where if you bring Mafia and Moloch EV down to zero, and you take 100% of the remaining Monarch EV and you give it back to users rather than the BBPs retaining it for themselves, then you're in an ideal state. And he was talking from a developer's perspective. He was talking from an engineer's perspective saying, Things like, this is how we get best execution, things like that. 
But it really struck me because it's not just an ideal state from an engineering perspective. It's also something that I thought could give those policy arguments underlying base layer neutrality new teeth. Because by directly neutralizing each bucket of the three EV at its respective sources, which can be done arguably through the technology itself, you could maybe result in BBPs that are much closer to the mere routers of information that OFAC tolerates in other communications industries. And and then you get closer to what everyone wants, which is free and open communications rails that isn't burdened by filtering and monitoring obligations. And so when you think about the key takeaways moving forward and the goal of building towards base layer neutrality, my understanding of the importance of that goal is that now we'll have this world much like the traditional internet base layer where you're regulating the correct actors, the correct entities, rather than regulating everyone and anyone who happens to be touching the particular ecosystem that the regulators have jurisdiction over. And to me, that seems to be the goal. And the question about how we get there is, I think largely what you identify is identifying the correct people to regulate and then having certain technology built in that makes it either makes it unnecessary, I guess, to regulate certain participants because they can't act in a manner that goes against the societal goods. You mentioned that salvation is in the tech, which I think is very, very many people in this particular industry agree with. And then you talk about relayers and you mentioned that they are the platonic ideal of a BPP. Can you explain why you said that and why that is the case? On the first point, I really wanted to hammer home the fact that I wasn't just doom posting. Like This isn't just a big paper that says, sorry, guys, Ethereum needs to be censored forever. I'm so sorry. That wasn't the intent. I think the paper is actually quite optimistic in its tone, if realistic, because by identifying through this kind of three EV framework, you have these abuses coming from these kinds of things, these from these, then you can start to say, okay, how do we make the technology better to address those things. For instance, you have sandwich attacks, which is a very common form of what I call toxic MEV and other kinds of generalized front running, which are these abusive practices in the space. And a lot of that can be addressed by encrypting the mempool. So it's physically impossible for actors to have this privileged position over the people that submitted the transactions originally. And there's a a slew of technologies that kind of do their own part in addressing certain elements of the three EV buckets. But ultimately, this salvation in the tech, this concept of the technology shouldn't be counted out. I'm not saying this is a foregone conclusion. I'm just saying that there's more work to be done. Like it's early on in Ethereum's development. I still think it's like an adolescent technology. And I think that, you know, you mentioned relayers. Relayers stands in kind of an illuminating contrast to the three or so other buckets of BBPs that are today in Flashbots building blocks. Because as I detail in, in, in great detail in the paper, the searchers, the builders, the validators, they each have their ability 
to act in their own self-interest, to reorder the way that transactions are ordered in a block, to just insert their own, to take all these actions that really just benefit themselves and their own self-interest over this kind of purely economic acting. I'm just a guy looking for the most profit I can. Uh, I'm a neutral service provider. And in contrast, the relays really are a neutral service provider because they just by their nature do not have the ability to extract MEV. They don't have, in the way that they sit in the chain, they're not able to insert transactions into the blocks. They're not able to reorder them after presented a full block by the builders, the, the one step prior. So all this stuff that I've been talking about, about how MEV is this new risk dimension and it, it evinces control over property. The relays don't have that control. They fail that element of the test. And so they don't have the same OFAC risk and they kind of demonstrate that there are actors in this space. The, the whole base layer isn't created equal. And those actors can serve as an example about what could be accomplished elsewhere in that assembly line. I guess it's interesting to note that the relay as a BVP is a planned temporary solution because Vitalik and other researchers have written about how they're seeking to what's called enshrine PBS into the Ethereum protocol itself, meaning they would take the role of the relay and put it inside of the mechanics of the protocol where the escrow agents that the relay is effectively acting as in between the builder and the proposer is just done by the protocol in some way. That's an active research question, but you have this ideal BBP that's not participating in MEV extraction, but only for a short period will it actually be an independent actor if all goes to plan in, in Ethereum. And you mentioned that Flashbots, Coinbase, and some others are acting in line with the viewpoints in your essay. Could you explain how that's happening and what that looks like? What I was referring to there is really just the fact that Flashbots and Coinbase and BBPs elsewhere in the industry that are based in the United States or have the United States nexus are conducting this SDN list filtering from the blocks that they build, if, if it's the Flashbots builder or blocks that they propose, if it's the Coinbase pool of validator nodes, these actors, because they're recognizing this same potential OFAC risk that I think I am. So I was kind of trying to say, I don't think that I'm creating some novel way of looking at things that leading lawyers and the people that they represent are already thinking about and doing. Also, it's interesting to note that Flashbots in at least their relay had a SDN blacklist implemented even before Tornado Cash was sanctioned. So it just had Russian EOAs, the Lazarus Group's EOAs, these individual wallets already listed in it because Flashbots and their advisors recognized that this was something that maybe could come up. And then beyond these kind of filtering and just compliance mechanisms, which I don't think are too novel in, in what I was proposing, you also have, of course, Coinbase mounting what 
many see as the best chance the industry has to defend solo and perhaps delegated staking in court, which is a decision that would go a long way in quelling certain existential risks for BBPs, particularly on the financial regulatory side of things, but also on this side when you're dealing with the legality of staking more broadly in the United States. And all of this kind of points to the fact that the industry's interaction with the governments in the United States and abroad are multidimensional on really on both sides with so much to explore. And as I said, I, I wasn't just seeking to say, hey, everyone, sorry to be a party pooper, but you all got a censor and that's the law. You know, what I really found useful in all of this research was this replicable framework that seemed to emerge about thinking about BBPs in the public discourse rather than a kind of a piecemeal or reactive one, which just res responded to things that the government might do in without a coherent mindset or framework around our approaches. And that's really born out of this shift that I mentioned at the beginning about thinking about things from a functionalist perspective, thinking about things from a who are the actors doing what things versus a formalist style of thinking where if we call it one thing or we call it a different thing, but it's the same thing at the functional level, then we can get away with that. If we just you know do some fancy footwork, maybe they'll believe the sleight of hand, which we can see. And as we talked about early on, doesn't seem to be how the government has really responded. They, they're not loving that approach and they kind of seem to scorn it. And Jacob, you mentioned early in the conversation about there's not just these risks around sanctions that this kind of applies to. It's also, you know, a laundry list of things from securities regulations to derivatives and commodities regulations, money service business things. You got data privacy issues, market manipulation, antitrust issues. You're running the gamut of, you know, it's it's crazy being a crypto lawyer in general because we need to kind of have a working knowledge on all of these things, but it's particularly relevant for actors on the quote unquote base layer because they're so close to the metal about the way that these transactions actually get propagated that I think it's importance for the industry and the industry's advisors to really understand how things work so that we can draw the distinctions where we think that the regulators or the policymakers may not have it right, or we can work with engineers and developers to create systems that not only move the ball forward on something like the three EV frameworks, but also create what I call strategic compliance, where you know we're not running afoul of what the regulators are saying, hey, don't do this or we will come after you. And in the meantime, we keep making the Ethereum network better, the, the protocol stronger, and we get to a place where we can bring in arguments to the government and say, hey, look at this thing that we've built. It does all of the things that the traditional systems that you're used to do and more and better. And we've developed a way all of the problems 
that you might say, well, this is full of scammers and thieves. So we're, again, the salvation's in the tech. And I, I love talking about this stuff with both colleagues of ours, as well as clients of mine that are building this kind of stuff, because getting deep in the weeds with the technology and kind of the legal hooks is kind of my favorite thing to do. And on that point, if people do want to read the full paper, I'll link it in the show notes below and they can click that and then they can reach out to you. We'll link Evan's Twitter account as well. And so you can reach out to Evan and have a conversation. Or if you're looking for work in this space, I highly recommend reaching out to Evan. Last question for you is what advice were you given in your career that has helped shape who you've become today? Yeah, it's funny. I you know, I probably could have benefited from a lot of early advice that I ignored. I kind of alluded to some of that before, but you really can't know that at the time. I think one or two of your earlier guests have said, just don't take advice from other people. And I thought that was really interesting because <laughs> I agree that you know everyone only lives their own experience and they have inherent biases and assumptions that are baked into advice they might provide. And so I try not to bake too much of those biases and assumptions too deeply into the way that I live my experience. The things that I've found just kind of being introspective and thinking about how I got here is I really think it comes down to like maintaining a fierce curiosity about what and who I surround myself with and taking the initiative to follow that without anyone telling me this is the way you do it, or this is not the way you do it. You know, I've accomplished a lot of things in my career that many people told me could not happen. But I maintained a faith in the process I had set out for myself. And that was supported by a love for what I was doing that got me through so much of like the day-to-day tedium of lawyering. And it's a mindset that I call focusing on the whys under the what's. And I think that that's something universal that a lot of people could apply because my specific path certainly isn't what I would call replicable. I mean, it hasn't been a straight line, but I wouldn't want to have done it any other way. Evan, thank you so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed that conversation. And like I said, I'll link the full paper in the show notes. But Evan, thank you for taking the time, man. Enjoyed that conversation. And I'm sure we'll continue to have conversations regarding things like MEV and sanctions risk going forward. Hopefully they're positive, but appreciate the work that you've done here. Thanks for having me, Jacob.